Today's episode is sponsored by ShopRemoteOffice.com. Remote Office has everything you need to get you through all these Zoom meetings and events and everything else you do online these days, especially with Skype and all the other social media platforms you have to get online, all the video platforms you have to get online. They have all the fun backdrops you could possibly have. They made me a beautiful custom one. We're going to be moving studios shortly. When we will be ready to go, we will have this beautiful backdrop from them. They can do custom images for you, anything you need. They have all the gear you need to look professional in your meetings or just to mess around with people for fun when you're doing online trivia nights. Make sure you check out shopremoteoffice.com slash discount slash Ari Hoffman to receive 10% off your first order. Welcome to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am your host, Ari Hoffman. We are your early warning system for all the horrible ideas coming out of the socialist utopia of Seattle that are now spreading across the country. So much is going on. Sometimes when I think, hey, there's nothing going on today, all of a sudden 10 stories drop in my lap. And then here I am just trying to play catch up with all the stuff going on. Just when you think it can't get any crazier. Now it's getting crazy to solve Seattle's spiking crime and drug epidemic. Seattle City Council proposes to stop charging for crimes altogether and to legalize heroin injection. On Wednesday, Seattle City Council member Lisa Herbold, chairperson of the Seattle City Council's Public Safety Committee, introduced legislation to excuse and dismiss almost all misdemeanor crimes committed in Seattle by persons with symptoms of addiction or mental disorder. This was followed by proposing a timeline and spending plan for heroin injection sites. So we've seen a massive spike in crime since the summer. And in the wake of defunding the multiple police department officers and departments. So now Scott Lindsay, former public safety advisor and special assistant for public reform to the city of Seattle, in an analysis of the proposal, said that Councilmember Herbold's proposal would create a legal loophole that would open the floodgates to crime in Seattle, effectively nullifying the city's ability to protect persons and property from most misdemeanor crimes. Lindsay says that the legislation proposes that any perpetrator with a credible claim of behavioral health symptoms, anything from drug use to depression, would effectively have blanket immunity from prosecution for misdemeanor assault, theft, harassment, trespass, stalking, car prowl, and 100 other Seattle crimes. So let me get this straight. If I'm depressed or upset, I can go assault somebody and then no charges are filed or anything. You know, for a city with a massive prolific offender problem where people just get turned out of jail again and again and again, I think this is really just a formality of getting rid of the charges. Now you don't have to take them into jail anymore because there's no law in this city anyway. What do you think is going to happen when you're not enforcing assaults, trespass, trespass, any of these things, car prowl, theft, harassment? Yeah, I can't see this backfiring any way, shape, or form. No, not at all. No, of course not. Now, here's something else interesting. They also have three circumstances. Substance use disorder, mental disorder, and poverty. So if you're poor, you're allowed to steal from everybody because they're saying that everybody is Jean Valjean from Les Mis. It's just a loaf of bread to keep them from starving. Not they're breaking into businesses because they're running chop shops and illegal fencing operations down here in Georgetown in my office. No, of course not. No, that can't be it. And people with mental disorders, no, we shouldn't be getting them treatment. We should just be letting them go from jail. And substance use disorder, no, we shouldn't be getting them treatment. We should just not be charging them. They're just misunderstood. 
In a lawsuit filed by the city of Seattle against Purdue Pharma in 2018, I've spoken about this time and time again. The Seattle Homeless Response Team, the navigation team, which got defunded, estimates that 80% of the homeless individuals they encounter and challenge in, in encampments have substance abuse disorders. Encampments have only grown since then as a majority of campers refuse city services, and now the council has defunded the homeless response team. Yeah, so not enforcing the law is really working out well for everybody. Just go to Ballard, go to West Seattle, go to Georgetown, and you'll see how much fun people are having with the RVs on the streets. According to Lindsay, last year Seattle made approximately 12,000 non-DUI or domestic violence misdemeanor arrests, two-thirds of all SPD arrests. City attorney charged 4,000 5,421 of those cases in Seattle Municipal Court. The rest were declined by the city attorney for a variety of reasons. I'm really curious what those reasons are. wonder if Andrew Lewis, Councilmember Andrew Lewis, handled any of those cases. Because after all, we know that he has no problem turning people loose and not enforcing the law. Councilmember Herbold also bypassed legislative procedure for consideration of changes to laws of the city and introduced through a backdoor an amendment in a budget committee meeting to discuss community safety and violation prevention programs. There were no public hearings. The legislation was never made readily accessible to the public. Herbal did not include any of the legislation in her own public safety committee. She did this because, think, what's going on? An election's coming up, one of the most contentious of our lifetime. There's a pandemic. There's riots. She figured she could just sneak it through because nobody's paying attention. Good thing for Scott Lindsay they picked this up. I sent him an interview request to come on the show. We'll see what he ends up saying. The discussion of the amendment only lasted five minutes, which means every city council member is complicit in this. It's not just Lisa Herbold. So those of you out there who are Lisa Herbold haters... All of them are responsible for this. You should hold all of them responsible. You should contact every single one of them. Here's something else. Seattle is also sitting on $1.5 million set aside in the budget for two mobile heroin injection sites. Originally, King County planned on a fixed site outside of Seattle because it couldn't find a suitable location. Officials call them Hells, Chells, Community Health Engagement Locations. In April 2019, U.S. Attorney Brian Moran, he's the one who's based here in Seattle, warned Seattle not to open up a site, saying it violates federal law. Quote, if they have a mobile van out there and it comes to my attention, the direction will be quick and consistent. Stop it, Moran said. During the meeting, the, the committee claims that they have engaged the ACLU to fight the open sites and they believe they have legal standing. They also claim that they have locations willing to host the injection sites. Now, I know this is what you all really want to know. Where are they going to be putting these things? Of course, they're not going to be near any council members' homes. No, of course not. They are going to be at the Aurora Commons, and the other location will be at the Hepatitis Education Project at 1621 South Jackson Street. So... If you are anywhere near these locations, please make sure to contact your council member and tell them how you feel about this. I also think we should have, I don't know, maybe a ballot measure that says if they want to open these things, that the first one should go in next to their houses. 100%. I think that should be a condition of opening the injection sites. We know they don't work. We've had updated studies since the bad information they've been working off of since 2017. We saw the Alberta report that showed that, yes, people die because of these sites, that it increases needles on the ground. That increases overdose. That increases crimes. But that doesn't matter. In fact, that was a study done by the government of Alberta in Canada because they want to show how to fix the injection sites. So this wasn't done by somebody trying to close them down. They actually want to double down on stupid, but they want to try and fix the problems. Unbelievable. Lindsay, he says his solution is instead to focus on building robust behavioral health intervention into the criminal justice system. I'm not really sure what that means. Love to have him on the show to find out. But basically, what this pretty much sums up as is that Seattle City officials don't want to enforce the law anymore. 
This is what you voted for, Seattle. I warned you this was coming. Don't say I didn't warn you. We got more going on here. You think that wasn't bad? No misdemeanors. No, no problem. We're not going to prosecute crime anymore. So how long? Where does it stop? Where do you say, okay, now we're not prosecuting felonies? When does it end? It doesn't end with these people. It just keeps going and going because they're not really prosecuting felonies anymore either. What? It just takes, if you murder somebody, then we'll get mad at you. We'll send you a very stern letter. And if you do it again, we'll send you another stern letter. Is that the direction we're heading? Because you don't have a police department anymore. So who's going to force any of these laws anyway? I mean, yeah, you have a police department, but they're a shell of what they were. They can't respond to 911 calls anymore. But anyway, the lying and the hiding continues because we just discovered some emails that were filed by a Washington state attorney in a public disclosure request, or sorry, take that back. A public disclosure request was filed by a Washington state attorney that claims that Governor Jay Inslee ordered the Washington state to close freeways so that protesters could demonstrate in mass gatherings which violate his own stay home, stay healthy orders. This while religious services were forbidden, schools were closed, and businesses were shuttered under the threat of criminal prosecution. So the guy who says we all need to stay home and stay healthy and wear masks and has a snitch list, you know that list where you can report your neighbors, friends, and other businesses for operating, even though he doesn't want you to? That one? Yeah, that guy closed highways and freeways so that protesters and rioters could go take them over and form in mass groups, mass gatherings, and spread the coronavirus. But of course, in Washington State, we don't ask if you've been to any protests or mass gatherings when we're testing you for coronavirus. No, that would make way too much sense. No, we don't find these things out. D. Angus Lee, who's an attorney, released the emails on Wednesday. In one internal email, to the Vancouver, Washington Police Department, Tim Martin wrote, the freeway slash bridge is being given to them by order of the governor, and Washington State Patrol has been told to divert traffic from I-5 onto SR-500. Lee stated that the email from Martin was dated a day before the BLM march, which evidences a clear intent by Governor Inslee to secretly subvert his own COVID restrictions and facilitate that massive BLM gathering during the peak of the COVID lockdown. This was back in June. This is back when the people were yelling at you for going outside back then. The email from VPD even discusses the new normal of rioters of protests. Even back in June, they knew that was going to go. This is when this was all starting, right after George Floyd died at the end of May. Quote, simply monitor on the outer perimeter for Antifa issues just like normal. That's your new normal. An email from Washington State Trooper Jason Lynn on June 19th, Lynn wrote that he had received a complaint from a member of the public about the blockage of the bridge and that Lynn had told the caller that we are under the order of the governor. Now, this is all well and good. He's telling them about shutting down the thing. But meanwhile, I contacted Jay Inslee's office and Mike Falk, who is his press secretary guy, denies it. He says it's a lie, and the governor never said any such thing. And then, so I just sent him the quotes. But then when I sent him the actual emails, he didn't respond. Now, this was interesting because when I sent him the quotes, he responded like that, bam, bam, bam. And then when I sent him the emails, he stopped responding. Why do you think that is? Because we caught him in a lie. We have no evidence to the contrary. He could have said, no, he never did it, and the order came from Bob, or whoever the order came from. Washington State Patrol talked to them. Nope. Washington State Patrol and Vancouver Police Department say it came from the governor's office. So who's the one who's not telling the truth here? This is the same Governor Inslee who supported BLM protests but condemned anti-lockdown demonstrations. In April, following a back-to-work rally in Olympia, the state capital of Washington, Inslee issued a statement. These are difficult and frustrating times. I understand the urgency of this crisis. However, this is not the time to halt the progress we have made. I encourage everyone in our state to stay home, stay healthy, and if you need to go out, practice adequate social, oh, sorry, physical distancing. I support free speech, but crowd counter speeches won't determine our course. This isn't about politics. It can only be about what's doing best for the health of all Washingtonians. So why are you closing highways? Why are you supporting other groups? 
because here's what he said about the protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd. He said, I fully support the right to free speech and peaceful assembly. I applaud every Washingtonian standing up for what they believe in, but we must do so in a way that allows space for these important and necessary discussions, not in a way that inspires fear. So can you make up your mind, buddy? If they're in line with what you politically believe in, they have a right to free speech and assembly. But if they don't, then you can shut them down. I don't remember that being in the Constitution. In fact, I specifically remember that everybody has the right to free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of peaceful assembly, peaceful assembly, and you're enabling rioters. That's just what's going on. Let's remember that during the same time period, Washington State Patrol was also tasked with shutting down the I-5 freeway in the middle of downtown Seattle so that occupiers from the CHOP, the Capitol Occupied Protest, could march across it every night blocking traffic. This led to the death of one of the demonstrators and the severe injury of another. According to the Seattle Times, following the tragedy, a spokesman for Governor Jay Inslee said Saturday afternoon that he continues to support the constitutionally protected right to protest and for those to do, who do it to be safe from harm. So they're okay to go on a freeway while traffic's going on in protest. Yeah, this guy doesn't have a track record of all of ordering freeway shutdown. No, of course not. Unbelievable. Angus Lee's statement on the lawsuit concludes us by saying that we believe that no matter how noble the cause of any gathering may be it is simply not up to the washington state patrol to recklessly put the public health of the community at risk by effect by actively facilitating a mass gathering in violation of state law he's 100 right if mass gatherings are a no-no why are we doing them seriously they're dangerous for everybody oh wait i forgot the coronavirus knows if you're protesting for george floyd or black lives matter and it won't get you there it'll only get you if you're going into a right to work rally or something that disagrees with Jay Inslee. Coronavirus and Jay Inslee are best, best friends. I assume this is happening in your state already. I'm seeing reports of it from across the country. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined by Judge Dave Larson, who is running for State Supreme Court of Washington. Now, so many people think that a judge has to be an activist or a strict constitutionalist. And they don't understand what a judge does. And I was just speaking to Judge Larson before the interview with so many of the great ideas. Judge, thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you please explain just what you see the role of a Supreme Court justice, what you could do in that role if you get elected to that office? Well, there's a, there's a lot of roles that the uh, justice plays. The one that the public perceives as the most important, and it is, one, it is the most important, is actually deciding appeals that come before the court. I mean, writing opinions, uh, looking at records, you know, the records of proceedings, trying to come up with the right answer legally, and then write, and then making an opinion clear enough for folks so they can understand it. Uh, that's, that's what a, a the primary, the, the face of a justice. But there's, in our state and other states, the Supreme Court is kind of the boss of the courts. They set the tone. There's a leadership role that Supreme Court justices should play in the overall operation of our system. Uh, we don't have a unified system. So it's, it's a little more difficult. I'm not, I, and I don't want a unified system for Washington. Uh, but we, uh, there's, a, there's a role, that pulpit that the justices have can play a strong role in the shape of our system, the perception of our system, the confidence people have in our system, uh, a vision for how we can address problems before us and the type, the type of things we were talking about before, you know, addiction, mental illness, homelessness, race, all those things that, that uh, that a justice uh, can use that leadership role to kind of inspire, because I believe it's always better to inspire than require. You know, it's basically the idea is to give people a vision and show them uh, show them the way. A lot of people think leadership is about getting your way, 
and my attitude, and I teach leadership, what I teach is leadership's about finding our way. And that's, that's what we need in this state because we're, lately we're so interested in getting our way that we've lost our way and we need to find our way back. I think that's a great way to put it. So in your role as Supreme Court Justice when you get elected, what are some things you could do to address mental illness, to address addiction, to address inequality, to address racial justice, any of these things that we're talking about, what are things you could do in that role to achieve any of those? Well, again, that it, it, because we have, don't have a unified system, it's convincing a lot of people to do things a little differently. Uh, when it comes to addiction and mental illness, as we were discussing before the show, because we don't have a unified system, and again, I don't want one. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Uh, each city and each court um, is, and each county is responsible for the expense of handling criminal justice within their, within their jurisdiction, okay? So what ends up happening is I'll just use, pick on Federal Way and Auburn. We're right next to each other. Auburn could have a lot of resources. Federal Way could have very little. And so Auburn takes an approach in their criminal justice system that's different than ours. They may have resources to deal with addiction that we don't. Uh, there may be an attitude of prosecutors, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it ends up happening. We have this fragmented, disjointed approach to these issues. And uh, we end up, uh, uh, again, treating a regional issue as a local problem and we never solve it. So spring, I wrote a strategic plan in 2018 that would actually provide for a unified way of handling this kind of a statewide strategy. And then I wrote a paper last year called Justice Involved Therapeutic Intervention, which basically uses what's called the sequential intercept model, which is you, you, you we have to partner more with existing services instead of like all the therapeutic courts you hear about. Each court has to create their own. So instead of creating my own therapeutic court, partner in the communities to plug ourselves into existing resources and be, make ourselves so we're less parochial, less isolated. And so that, that would be what I'd advocate for. And that can be done um, with very little legislation and uh, very little money because it just comes about communication and coordination. And um, so, and, and, it, and it's, it's using a different approach, starting with the therapeutic approach from the beginning, the first time offender, trying to identify those issues before it gets out of hand. Because right now what you're seeing is we treat it, it's just a misdemeanor. So what the heck, right? And we need to take that more seriously the first time and then we don't get people out of control. And uh, I know that's, it, it's trying to talk about a, a two hour conversation in a three minute response, but it's, there's so many things we can do if we take our, put our thinking caps on, uh, and just looking at looking at ourselves and being critical of ourselves and how we contribute the way the way we do things like a lot of people don't know that when you go to jail your medicaid's the medicaid's suspended so somebody's in the middle of the treatment they get a warrant served they go to jail their medicaid's suspended so the very treatment they're trying to get we block because and then when they get out they got to get their insurance back and then there's a gap they relapse and a lot of it becomes counterproductive so there's solutions to that too that we could talk about but it's just getting out there and, and getting people to work together. Another example is somebody may go into inpatient treatment. Nobody bothers to tell the courts. So the person misses courts, so they get a warrant. Misses court, so they get a warrant. They get out of treatment, they get stable. The warrant catches up with them. They lose their housing. They lose maybe a job, and they start all over again. So those are the kind of almost insane things that we do in the system to kind of perpetuate some of these issues. So and I and and I'm trying to talk about a lot of solutions, but, but most of it just comes down to shifting the way we look at things. This is great because one of the things I love to discuss, everybody can complain online as much as they want. 
not everybody says, here's the solution for the problem and here's the one I want to present. And that's something I very much enjoy hearing from you. It's so refreshing rather than this person's wrong and that's wrong. And no, this is, this is the problem. Here's the solution. Let's fix it. What's your background that brought you to this understanding of all this kind of stuff? What's your, what's your history? What's your experience with all this? I know that they make a big deal of that when they do Supreme Court nominees, but you know, people just look at it and go, oh, what does this person align with when they're voting? Well, I just talked about it on a live stream on Facebook about being the son of a guy that grew up on a dairy farm where chewing gum and bailing wire is the way you fix things. And uh, he was an airline mechanic that could make anything out of anything. He, one time he wanted an engine hoist. So he made the entire engine hoist, in, including the hydraulic jack. So that's the kind of guy that I, that I was around. And so it, mine's more in the abstract. Kind of the, the ethic is a problem is an invitation to solution, right? Adversity is opportunity. You, you, look for the, you look for the ways to solve things. And you can, you can, spin, you can rest in place or spin your wheels trying to complain, or you can figure out how to fix it. And just years and years, it didn't take long once I got on the bench, because I wasn't a criminal lawyer. I was a civil lawyer, handled large civil cases before I went to the lowest court imaginable, which is municipal court. Uh, last case I worked on in Washington State was damage to the King and Queen of Thailand's brand new 737. And I was national counsel on 15,000 lawsuits, man supervising some of the best lawyers in the world on lawsuits. And I went from that to handling traffic and misdemeanors. But it was an eye-opener. I think that the idea that I didn't do that kept me more open to what I saw, where people that grew up in the system, number one thing I hear was, well, that's just the way we do things. Well, that's not good enough. Uh, because what you see in Seattle, what you see around the area, is that's just the way we do things. And again, if just that one thing of, of looking at that first-time offender, treating it serious then, and try to identify underlying causes and deal with them then, we would save so much grief for everybody. It's, it's absolutely silly. And th that doesn't mean that it ends there. That means that there's a process to follow when this, they come back the second time. You ramp it up. Third time, you ramp it up. And here's an, I actually wrote legislation on this. To, it's called therapeutic detention facilities. Right now, if, if a city wants to put somebody in jail and pay for treatment or a county, they have to pay it out of their own pocket because Medicaid's suspended, right? So there's no way to pay for it unless the city pays for it. Nobody has any money, so it's not paid for. So why not carve out an exception to that suspension rule? Because it used to be it was terminated, and then a few years ago it got changed to suspended. Carve out an exception where if certain standards are met, like you have a hospital that can't leave, it's more like a hospital you can't leave than a jail that you get treatment in. If it meets the standards, then carve out an exception to allow somebody to be sentenced to that facility. Medicaid can pay for the treatment they get out of custody, and then the local community would pay for the detention. And then finally, if you can imagine somebody that's interacted with the system long enough to where now it's the, either the fourth time, the fifth time we've seen the same thing, we're now going to put you in this facility where you're forced to get treatment you can't leave until you're done. And the other thing is recognizing that the mental health issues are almost more important than anything. If somebody goes on YouTube and looks up, know me before you judge me, or goes on my Facebook page at Judge Dave Larson, for Supreme Court, they'll see a story of a guy named Lalu, who was in the system for 13 years before he became clean and sober. And the question of that video, after you hear his story, is what would his life have been like if somebody would have intervened at age 18, right? And um, he ultimately died of an overdose, though. So it's a sad story. But, but the point is, is that um, 
I think my father is probably my inspiration on just about everything because of, of the man that could, like I said, make anything out of nothing. That's beautiful. And you've got my vote. I mean, even <laughs> it's like sometimes you don't really get to meet the people. And one of the reasons I try and have candidates on is so people can listen to and hear all the perspectives inside. I, I keep inviting other people on from other perspectives. They don't seem to want to come on my show. But one of the things I think people feel better hearing what a person stands for, hearing where they came from, hearing what their life experience is like, and then they go, oh, now I can put a face to who I voted for. Now I can put a name, now I can put an experience. I well, think that's very important. If people want to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, my website is Larson for WA, that's L-A-R-S-O-N-F-O-R-W-A dot O-R-G. And my Facebook, obviously, is just, just search, use the search key, Judge Dave Larson for Supreme Court and you'll find the Facebook page. Um, how much more time do we have? We can keep going as long as you like. I'm a flexible guy. Well, my, I'm going uh, to share some I don't share with a lot of people. Or sure. I'll share it with you why, what, where my empathy comes from. And uh, when I was 12, uh, my, my dad worked for Northwest Airlines, and it was also called No Work Airlines, NWA, because they were always on strike. Uh, and they had what's called the mutual aid pack. Northwest made $40 million dollars in the six months they, they were on strike without flying an airplane. So they never had an incentive to settle the strike. So we were, when I was 12, I was selling firewood. My warehouser would let us go up on the, their land and get junk logs and we'd turn it into firewood. And I helped my dad pour patios and sidewalks to, to help make the house payment. Uh, you know, we were on food stamps a short time. Uh, we were, uh, I had free and reduced lunch. I didn't eat lunch my entire seventh grade year uh, because I was ashamed. Because back then it was, you had to wave it. You know, basically everybody could tell you were free and reduced. So I got that sense of what it feels like to, you know, and, and I think it, it struck kind of a teenage depression that I had probably all the way through my teen years. You know, I, I wasn't mentally ill, but bottom line is I, I, the, the empathy I have for others comes from the, what I went through. This, this uh, you know, not, not quite anywhere near as drastic as what folks go through, but, but to, to live that kind of, uh, to have a taste of it was enough to give, to give an, an empathy that you can't have unless you've lived it. And then they, um, um, but the attitude I have towards, towards that is, uh, towards this and the system, if the system's too soft, if it's too much compassion and which you might see in Seattle, that people have criticized that it's too compassionate. You end up enabling behavior. If it's too firm, if it's too strict, if it's too, you know, kind of draconian, they don't do anything to solve the underlying issues. So, the, the approach we need to take is kind of that balanced approach. And that's the balanced approach my father used in me when he raised me, my balanced approach I use with my kids, and the balanced approach I use in court. I say I run a repair shop, not a junkyard, because it's about redemption, mm -hmm. about giving people an opportunity for themselves but uh, to, to save their lives. But without my experiences I, that I had, even that short time and, and really kind of lame compared to other people, uh, it gives me a little bit of a taste of what people are going through. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story, a woman that was in my community court. She was a heroin addict. Uh, she had been clean and sober for a while. She, she was living in the woods. Somebody finally gave her a motor home and she had it like three days and somebody torched it. So here she is with no home again. So she comes to court, she's devastated and, and just about anybody would be devastated. So I asked her one question. I said, did you use? She said, no. And I, then I, at that point in time, I said, you realize how much progress you've made? Anybody would be significantly stressed. And you were able to get through it without reverting to your old habits. 
and that that kind of just woke her up to a to a to a much larger potential for herself because she saw her strength and uh, those are the kind of things that when we spend the time with folks we can actually if they're willing and able to do it we're able to help them change their lives you know there's a concept in judaism called ahavan yira which is love and fear that's what it translates to which is pretty much the tough love approach that you're talking about you know know when to be tough know when to have compassion i'll say from my own experience because you shared a little bit when i was a teenager i did something very stupid with a car and ended up in front of a judge and was looking at some serious problems and that judge took pity on me first time offender stupid teenage kid did something dumb and that was a milestone in my life too where it could have gone the other way if something else had happened and people you know the judges a lot of people contact me and they go who do we vote for i don't know who any of these people are i go this is one of the things you really have to research guys this is something you really got to get to know them you know the what a local judge does is more important than what the president of the united states does and more likely to impact your life in a more substantial concrete way so right. Yeah, I really appreciate you being so open with us, so honest with us, and taking the time. Well, the thing is, is that one thing about judges is we, I think we overinterpret the rules sometimes to think that we have to be isolated, and we don't. I think confidence in us, like in my community every year, and I sound like I'm bragging now, but the local newspaper does a best of federal way. And because I am so open and because I am out in the community, I, the last two years I beat out the mayor uh, for most popular. I mean, I, I was second most popular to the deputy mayor. Uh, but uh, but I, the mayor was third, which uh, so the point is, is judges can still maintain ethics, can still maintain. In fact, it's better. Uh, people have more confidence, I think, in the court because they know my character and they know that where, where my decisions come from. I, I was sitting in McDonald's one day having some oatmeal on the way to Ellensburg to see my son and with my wife. And and uh, this woman comes up to me and says, uh, I want to just thank you for how you treated me. And I, I decided a case against her the day before, you know, and, and just, you know, the fact is, is that people are scared when they come to court. One time I told this guy, he was there looking all scared. And I said, well, at least you're not at the dentist. And he said, he'd rather be at the dentist. And uh, so that made me feel real good. But that's, that's the trial courts, the Supreme court, you know, we're not seeing people we're, we're but we are setting the tone, the tone of the courts. Uh, you know, every judge is independently appointed or elected. You know, most judges are elected in Washington. Some and some are smaller municipal courts that are appointed. But um, so each of us have our own personalities and approaches. But so the best I can do is is, uh, is we develop rules and practices and procedures that focus on that therapeutic approach first. And like I say, like I've said this many times, it's my job is to separate the a trial judge's job is to separate the cancer from the wounds. You know, the cancer are the ones that have barriers that are sincerely troubled, sincerely having issues that result in them committing crimes. And we help them and help them and help them until they overcome those barriers. The won'ts are the ones that just won't engage. They're the ones that are willful about what they do. And that's what the punitive system's for. And uh, that, that, that understanding, uh, I think, builds confidence in people if they know that are, because that, sometimes the people that, that deserve it, that uh, deserve it the least need it the most. And, uh, and so sometimes it's uh, like I, sometimes these folks are like the new lepers, you know what I mean? And uh, we need to uh, have that compassion, yet expect something out of them in return. Expect them to want a better life for themselves. I've said it so many times, you're speaking my language. Judge Larson, I wish you the very, very best of luck. And thank you so much for being with us today. And we will be back after a brief word from our sponsor. 
Yeah, yeah but we, we check everywhere. I'm yet you're still writing the assignments outside. We have empty classrooms. Let's go upstairs. You gonna join us? Come. Which way do you want to go? Anyway. Well, I, you're the one writing me a summons. You must know something I don't know. So which way do you want to go? I mean, it looks good from here. Obviously, there's nobody here. So why are you writing me a summons? Um, please don't record me. I Thank have to you. record you because you're giving me a summons outside. How can I not record you? If I wouldn't have opened the door, you would have put a summons on my door. Because we have a list. A list so of what? We're just um, verifying now if... You have a list of schools that are open? Yes. So you have a summons that you're writing before even coming into the school because you just came into the no. school. There's not one kid here. No, see, this is the thing. What you guys are not understanding. Three weeks ago, yeah. orders went out stating whatever school's open must close because it's a red and orange zone right. area. Right. So we revisit these schools. If we find that these schools are open, right. summonses go out. But why we were you writing a summons outside though? There's nobody in here. What she no. said, she wanted to know why are they open? Why are they in, in They're not open. There's only staff in here. There's no kids. It seems like you guys have a list that you're just coming around giving summons to, whether we're open or closed. Hey, can you tell her that this gentleman is recording me? Yeah, the whole, the whole conversation is being recorded. Hey, Jeff. Just keep going. Hey, speak to Jeff. That's me. Yes, ma'am. Can I see your Hi, bed? Jeff, how are you? Your bed? <laughs> Thank you. Um, they say that they do administrative work, but there's no kids at all in here. Okay. As a Jew, I could say the next story is horrifying. The video you just saw that has gone viral on social media shows people who claim to be New York inspectors issuing summons to a closed Jewish day school. When confronted by staff at the school, one of the inspectors claims they are working off a list of schools, causing many to speculate if there is a list of Jewish schools being targeted and compiled by the city, county, or state of New York. Because we know that Governor Andrew Cuomo seems to have a bug up his you-know-what with regards to the Jewish community and seems to be targeting them nonstop. So, according to the New York Police Department, they are aware of the list of the inspectors, but that the purview and enforcement was under the jurisdiction of the sheriff's office. I contacted the sheriff's office. They claim not to know anything about it. I contacted the governor's office. They haven't gone back to me yet. Kind of curious what their excuse for all this is going to be. Though at one point in the video, you saw the inspector showed a badge to the camera. That badge is not easily identifiable. Plus, the people are in street clothes. The going theory is that these people are actually temps who are tasked with this and not regular inspectors. No students were in the school at the time. The school was closed as per the controversial new orders of Governor Cuomo, which many in the Jewish community have claimed target Jews and are anti-Semitic. In the video, the inspector acknowledges that no students are in the building. Obviously, there's nobody here, they say. A school employee then asks, so why are you writing me a summons? Now, for those of you who keep asking what a summons is, a summons is a fine citation, court appearance letter. That's what it is. In New York, they call them summonses. The inspector responded, because we have a list. 
The inspector goes on to explain that schools in the orange and red zones were ordered to close and that they visit schools to see which are open. The school employee continues to ask the inspectors why he's receiving a summons if no students are in the building. The inspector abruptly cuts off, pretty much says, talk to the hand, and goes to a conversation with a different employee, a different inspector, rather, and then gets on the phone with their supervisor. The inspector grew irate and asked the employee to stop recording the interaction and seemed more concerned about being recorded than the optics of working off a list of Jewish institutions for a government agency. The end of the video shows the employee speaking to what seems to be a supervisor at the other end of the conversation. Does this not trouble anybody else that there are lists of Jews and Jewish organizations? There are videos all over. This isn't just one video. There are pictures of inspectors going to multiple Jewish institutions to see if they are opened or closed. The governor has no right to do this. Let's go through the law for a second. Right to, uh, sorry, free from religion, uh, free from religion, free to practice religion. First Amendment. It's all right there. Government shall make no law regarding established religion. So technically, we could have been fighting these things from day one. I don't know if there's been any cases in New York with regards to the shutdown orders or not. People, for the most part, are following the rules. Yeah, we've seen the videos of the Jews who are breaking the rules, just like we've seen videos of other people breaking the rules. But it's the minority, it's not the majority. The majority of people are conforming because they don't want to be dealing with summons and things. But here are organizations that are actually listening to the rules and they're being cited. They're being fined. They're being written up. Does that not scare anybody else? Because if they're coming for us, odds are they're coming for you next. I saw a great movie over the weekend. I was watching the Chicago 7, the new thing on Netflix. Now, Aaron Sorkin is definitely more to the left and takes some leaps, I'd say, in the way he makes the protesters look. Now, you can't not make them look sympathetic because the judge and the prosecutor and everything that went wrong in that case is a train wreck. I was reading about it online. But what they kind of hid was the fact that these guys are a bunch of raving Marxists for the most part. I mean, yeah, there's the normal ones, but Abby Hoffman and uh, I forget the other guy's name. It's slipping my mind. These guys are Marxists. And when you watch the rioting against police officers and you watch everything that's going on, it reminds me so much of today. And did they not learn the lessons that this could be what actually triggers a Trump win? Because people don't like unrest. Now, people may say they don't like the craziness in the world and they blame Trump for it. And they're saying we're voting for Biden just for a break from the Trump craziness. That could happen. Or are they going to say this craziness is all for the people who are trying to get rid of Trump? And we can't deal with this insanity and this anti-police department stuff anymore. We can't deal with any of that anymore. We want Trump back in office. Personally, I think it's going to be a very clear and decisive victory one way or the other. I don't think it's going to be as contentious or rather contested as everybody thinks it is. We'll be back with more episodes of Canary Coal Mine later in the week. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy. And it seems to be up to you if you want to hold by the governor's orders or not, because it seems as long as you're protesting, you can go do whatever you want. So make that decision for yourselves. We'll see you next time.